Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of the McMaster Communications Governance Observatory podcast. My name is Samantha Naidu, and for this episode, we will be exploring the governance of smart cities and other platforms in the city of Toronto. To speak more on this topic, we have Dr. Zachary Spicer, an expert researcher and senior associate at the Innovation Policy Lab at the University of Toronto. So for our very first question, um, we previously did a podcast about smart cities with Dr. Tracy Lorio, which was really informative, but today we'd like to focus a little more on the actual governance of smart cities. So would you be able to talk a little bit about the governance of a smart city proposed for the Toronto waterfront and how that might compare to other Canadian um, smart city initiatives? Certainly. Um, so the Keyside project, uh, in terms of governance, we, we don't have... Uh, all the details quite yet. So um, the public is waiting on something called the Master Innovation and Development Plan, um, which is uh, the final uh, plan for the Keyside neighborhood, which would include all the physical elements, the digital uh, um, portions of the project, and then, of course, the uh, governance arrangements. So that's due to be sent to Waterfront Toronto at some point in the near future. Um, we've heard that it's kind of over a thousand pages, so it's going to be, it's going to be incredibly detailed. So it's, um, it's essentially, um, the master plan for the whole neighborhood. So, um, w without that, we can't say for certain, but I think what um, what the Keyside project uh, has done is kind of sharpened our focus a bit on the governance of smart cities here in Canada. Um, the Keyside project is entirely driven by a private company, right? It's a, it's a company that is um, uh, a subsidiary of Elfbit Inc., which is um, also the uh, parent company of Google. Um, and most of the other smart city initiatives in Canada um, are really state-driven. So the acquisition of smart city, smart city technology is, for the most part, driven by government, right? And this is a project that is being created and driven by a private company, but is supposedly going to be regulated by the government. Um, so it's it's a little bit different, but I think that's primarily the reason why we need to focus more a more on the on the governance aspects of this because we really need to sort of get this right, right? Because Sidewalk Labs is a company that is going to build more neighborhoods like this, right? This is the is the business model, right? So I think that we need to get the governance of of the data um, correct here, um, or else this is a, a model that is going to be re replicated elsewhere without the same level of criticism that we've applied to it here, I think. Okay, yeah, no, I completely agree with you. And then I guess I know a lot of the fears surrounding smart cities are about privacy and then also will there be voluntary participation or will everyone just have to participate if they live in the area? And could you speak a little bit more about those topics? Sure. Um, so data is the fuel for smart cities. And um, the whole idea about a smart city is that you can have a personalized urban experience, right? That the city would sort of know you, right? And that it would become accustomed to you and that the city would react differently to you than it would to someone else. So that's the sort of utopian vision out there, right? That 
that it's a city for everyone uh, shaped by their own personal tastes and, and, and preferences. Um, to accomplish that, um, smart cities need to collect a lot of data about us. And they need to collect a lot of data that was previously unavailable, right? So now you can, be, you can, you can build really advanced profiles um, by tracking people around the city, knowing where they go. Um, we exhibit patterns, you know, ba- based upon um, you know, what, how we move around the city, right? You, people would know a lot about that. Um, smart cities would know the, you know the sort of purchases that we're making, right? And you can use that to sort of drive uh, marketing towards us, right? Um, they know where we work, where we stay, the type of food that we like to eat based on the restaurants that we, that we go to, right? So there's a lot of intelligence that, that can be gathered about individuals um, if you if you had a full smart city put into place, so what's happening with this, with the Keyside project is that um, it's envisioned with something called a digital layer, which is best, which is sort sort of conceived as sort of cloud based technology, right? That will essentially um, collect data uh, on everyone and everything within the Keyside neighborhood, and the whole idea there is to make it responsive. So um, if you if this digital layer had to ask permission before it collected everything, uh, it would really slow down the, the sort of thinking that, it, that a smart city needs to do. So the whole idea about gaining consent um, for data collection is really at odds with the sort of theoretical underpinning of what a smart city is supposed to do. Um, so mm-hmm. I think to really ensure that there is privacy in place, I think we really need to unpack the concept and the end goal of what a smart city is is supposed to look like and feel like. And do you think that will be in that thousand page document? Um, I'm I'm not sure. I think we'll get more information about um, how Sidewalk Labs is using data. Um, right now, I think we are sort of left to to worry a lot about you know the, about the worst case scenario, right? I think that we that there, there's a lot of us out there who think that you know th- this really all is about commercialization that you can collect all of this data and that you can commercial you can commercialize it. The digital layer is going to allow third parties to actually tap into it. So, um, Sidewalk Labs is going to be a bit of a gatekeeper over over who has access to to that data. So we don't know who is going to be able to really tap into it. So I'm hoping that some of those questions are going to be finally answered um, when we get the, the this uh, master plan. Um, the original response to the Waterfront Toronto RFP by Sidewalk Labs didn't really have a lot of specifics on that. So we're left to wonder really, you know, how this project is really going to make money. Because we we can assume that, you know, this isn't really a land development um, project, right? Because Google's really not in that business. So the question is, you know, how how is this company making money off this neighborhood aside from you know selling retail space and selling condos and 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 stuff like that? What are they doing to to make money and we think that you know it's it's going to be the same business model as google right it's we can assume that um you know this is really all about data so until we see that final document um you know we're really not sure how this thing's going to actually play out Mm -hmm. and then i guess moving forward from there is there an argument that sidewalk labs should have all this autonomy and who gets to see the 
information or should there really be a lot more federal, provincial, municipal governance over smart city initiatives? I mean, I think um, there needs to be a lot more regulation over over what happens with this data. We need to know um, how this data is collected, how it's accessed, how it's governed, who has access, um, what portion of it is open, uh, who gets to who gets to decide what's open, right? Um, there's a lot of questions left out there right now, and um, I think one of the big challenges right now is figuring out who should be the regulator of projects. And I think that um, we're in this sort of this, the, the entire waterfront has some of a complex governance arrangement. Waterfront Toronto is a special purpose body, but it's also a multi-level special purpose body in that um, it, it, uh, it has governance aspects that speak to the, the federal government, the provincial government, and the municipal government, right? So um, it's not entirely within the city's purview, um, but it's not entirely within the federal government's purview, right? So I think one of the challenges here is that you know we don't have national data sta- uh, standards. We don't have a national data plan. Um, we don't have any similar standards provincially. Um, and I think one of the big problems here is that we're sort of doing, we're, we're leaving the heavy lifting to municipalities who are probably the level of government with the least capacity to think through and regulate some of these activities. And I think that we think smart cities, it's a city thing, it's a local government issue. But to me, the challenge there really is that um, cities don't have the, have the capacity to put robust data governance standards in place. Um, you know, uh, t- Toronto might, uh, but does Guelph, um, you know, does Belleville, uh, you know what I mean? So, you know, uh, do, do small towns, right? So, I mean, the thing is that um, Sidewalk Labs has focused our attention on a rather big project, but smart city technology is you know, being implemented in every municipality across Ontario, right? So yeah. municipalities need to think through these things. And I don't know if they have the ability to properly regulate it, right, without higher orders of government stepping in. So I guess continuing with the governance theme, but moving away from smart cities, we have a lot of platforms in our cities like Uber and Airbnb. And how would you say municipal governments are becoming more involved with these platforms and their governance? And what have the trends that you've seen or the relationships that you've seen been? Well, I mean, they're all they're all regulated um, out of necessity, right? So uh, what companies like Uber and Lyft uh, did is that they they uh, disrupted a industry that was always under the regulatory purview of, of the city, right? So municipalities have been regulating taxis uh, for over 100 years, right? So this was something that looked and uh, felt and acted like a taxi service, right? So um, there was a instant regulatory response. And a lot of that had to do with the fact that um, that taxi cab companies and taxi cab owners were really placing pressure on on the city to to, to do something about Uber because it looked like a bandit cab company at first, right? Um, so I think that um, you know, different cities, their initial regulatory response was to ban Uber. So um, that was Toronto's first response. Um, San Francisco, L.A., New York, Chicago, they all took the, the exact same approach. 
Um, but what companies like Uber do is that um, they they continue to operate outside of the law, right? So um, there was a pretty interesting strategy that was um, laid out uh, by a guy named Bradley Tusk, um, who was one of the sort of early lobbyists for for companies like like Uber, and he basically um, wrote a biography a couple of years ago called The Fixer. And he essentially laid out what what the plan was, is that if a company like Uber was banned or restricted, um, they would just keep on operating and they would pay any associated fines because they knew that that they had a product that consumers liked. And so they once once consumers liked the product, they would use those same consumers to act as advocates on their behalf, right? So to call the counselor and say, you can't get rid of Uber, I love Uber, right? Or I love Airbnb, you can't get rid of them, right? yeah, it's. I mean, from from a lobbying standpoint, it worked and it was quite successful. And um, guys like Bradley Tusk have made a lot of money uh, implementing similar strategies elsewhere. Um, so over time, um, municipalities became they they kind of realized that you can really fight with Uber, right? That you could try to regulate them, but you couldn't ban them. And there's only a few jurisdictions out there where where Uber is is really you know, effectively banned. Um, and that's mostly because Uber got tired of fighting and they've left. Um, and so, okay, so I think that over time they've taken a more permissive attitude. I think that now that we're starting to realize the damage that some of these companies can do from a labor perspective, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're starting to understand a little bit more about how these platforms work. Uh, now that some of them are filing for, for IPOs, we're getting a lot more information about about their about their uh, their business practices and their fiscal health. Uh, we know that Uber and Lyft are losing a lot of money, right? So, um, you know, I think that now now that we know a lot more about them, I think cities are are looking a little more carefully at how they should be approaching companies like Uber and Lyft and associated platform firms. Uh, but for the most part, I think this this permissive regulatory approach is still in play. Okay. And then I guess if you're just a member of the general public or you work for one of these big companies and you run into issues with them, but there aren't any regulatory laws to protect you, what do you think that some of the things that we as a public can do to advocate for ourselves? Well, I think it's uh, it's somewhat challenging with the platform firms. Um, they don't really have physical assets in most of the cities, right? So, you know, you think about um, cab drivers. Um, you know, th- these were people who lived within your city, who were doing business in the city. They own physical assets in the city, right? But I mean, Uber doesn't really own anything within a city like Hamilton, right? They don't own property here. They don't own any of the vehicles that 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 are out there. These are really all, you know, these are contractors essentially who are using their own vehicles, right? And Uber is just simply taking a cut, right? So it's yeah. tough to enforce um, judgment against someone who has really no physical presence, right? Um, and so that becomes a little bit more challenging, right? So um in terms of smart cities they're, they're going to have more of a physical presence um but these are big companies and it's tough to it's it's tough to enforce your rights against them so i'd say that from the perspective of the general public i think we need to be a lot more cognizant 
um, of the regulatory aspect and what cities and governments are putting in place to protect us. And I think that if we, you know, we don't advocate for ourselves to governments, right, we're, we're going, to, going to end up losing. We need to make sure that, um, that we're advocating towards government for, for the right laws and the right regulations to, to protect us, not just, you know, financially or physically, but to protect us from a, from a, dat, from a data governance um, aspect as well. Okay, and then I guess as a researcher, how do you feel that your research impacts policy creation that benefits the public when dealing with governments and platforms? Well, I mean, um, I, I always like to make sure that whatever I'm writing or researching is, is, is made public. I think that um, there's a lot of interest within the research community right now to better understand how these platforms work and to better understand the way that smart cities work and what's the, what the consequences of these platforms and these products might be. And so I think that, um, you know, for, for the most part, we're really the only ones who are, you know, applying a critical lens to some of these projects, right? And there's um, some fantastic researchers out here. So like, let's just um, take us back to to the um, Keyside uh, project, right? That when it comes to this particular project, right, um, you have people out there like Bianca Wiley who are doing a fantastic job applying, you know, applying legitimate criticism to to the Sidewalk Labs company and their project, right? And I would I would say that without her out there abdicating, um, I don't know if we would know as much about the Sidewalk Labs project as we would. I don't know if we would know enough about Keyside to, to properly pass judgment on it, right? So she has been uh, uh, just an absolute superstar, right? Helping us better understand you know, what this company re really wants to do. So I think without people like her, we would really be in the dark, right? And I think that she has made a lot of people a lot more conscious about you know, what this company really wants to do and made a lot of us question what the end game is, what the motives are, and, and what the financial incentive really is. Okay, those are all the questions that I had for today. Thank you so much to Dr. Spicer for this very educational and engaging episode. And thank you everyone for tuning in to this month's episode of the McMaster Communications Governance Observatory podcast. For more episodes, please visit cgo.mcmaster.ca. See you next month.